Father God, we thank you for being the God who is light and who has no darkness in you at all. We praise you for this fact because it is in the glorious light of your truth that we find rescue from the darkness that surrounds us and that which mars the inner man that you've created within us. You are a glorious God who is good and gracious in your creative capacity. And so we first give you adoration and praise for all that you've spoken into existence by the strength of your powerful word. Father, thank you for life, for love, and for all the good provision that you give to us. No sooner do we look to your glory, though, than we also realize our own depravity. Father, we are a people in great need of your salvation. The world that we inhabit is glorious in its original beauty, but due to the sin of mankind, we have twisted it to be a place of unspeakable horror, perversion, and destruction. The darkness of the world often seeks to overwhelm us, and we, being such fearful and small creatures, we seem to break when this happens. We scatter and scurry to find something to ease the pain or to give us a sense of control or something to escape that which we are facing. But when we come to ourselves again, we realize we are just that much farther from the true source of life and liberty and salvation that can only be found in you. So, Father, forgive us this morning for having such a weak and temporary faith. We are truly dust, and we therefore need you. Thank you that our faith is not found in our own strength. For if it were, we would be without hope, and the darkness would truly overwhelm us. Thank you, Lord, that faith is a gift that you freely give to those whom you have chosen out of your mercy and grace, not out of any qualification that we might have, for we would fail, and we would all be lost. We were once dead in trespasses and sin and could not even raise our head or open our eyes to your glory, but you, in your kindness, have given us grace that enlivens our souls to praise you. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious work of salvation. We pray that your redemption would be at the core of all we do and all we are here in this church this morning. We pray the same for our sister churches that are meeting. We pray for the chapel church and their lead pastor, Stephen Brucker, and their elders there in Puyallup, Washington. We pray that you would comfort them with a knowledge of your love and grace this morning as they find refuge in your gospel. We pray for Salem Heights here in town and especially their desire to raise up lay ministers to care for those who are hurting. We ask that you bless their pastoral counseling ministry in that pursuit, and especially the pastor that leads it, Pete Potloff. We also glory in your work of salvation as a church this morning, as we thank you for the life of our dear brother, Ted Worth, who passed from this life into eternity on Friday. We thank you for the short time we, as a church, got to spend with him and know him, and most importantly, know you through him. We thank you for his wife, Cheryl, and their children, and their large extended family. And most of all, we thank you that you declare the truth, that precious in your sight is the death of your saints. For we know that in your providence, Lord, you have prepared a place for him to dwell with you in worship and praise for all time. So we are of good courage. For we know that the Holy Spirit you poured out into his heart is the same that dwells within us and with us here today. And so we have faith that we will one day be reunited with our brother in glory. We rejoice with Ted in the joy that has been re revealed in fullness to him. And we also weep with his wife Cheryl and their children and family. May you comfort their hearts today and in the coming days as they mourn the loss of someone they love so dearly. Please help them in all the funeral arrangements and the days after as they wrestle with his loss. Please surround them with your love and be their hiding place in the midst of their sadness. And please help us as a church to mourn well with them and to show Cheryl, especially, that she is loved, that she has an extended home in the midst of this body, and that she is not alone. As we now step into your inspired word, Lord, we pray that you would give us a fresh vision of your salvation. Please help our hearts and minds to be open so that you might enthrone yourself on the praise of your people and we might know you more. Help us to praise you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And open your Bibles up to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. 
When it comes to a life of faith lived in the midst of horrific suffering, there are few that compare to Corrie Ten Boom. She was a young woman who was alive during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in World War II. Her father was a watchmaker, and she worked for him, becoming the first licensed female watchmaker in the Netherlands. She and her family were strong Christians within the Dutch Reformed Church, and their faith greatly instructed their lives within their community as they cared for youth, the poor, and the handicapped. And it was because of their charitable and hospitable reputation that Jewish refugees started to come to them at the height of the anti-Semitic genocide by the Nazis. Jews would come to their home to seek refuge from the secret police, and because of this, they became a part of the underground Dutch resistance. Now, it quickly became obvious that those they were hiding and smuggling out of the country could not be found in their home during routine Nazi inspections, or all of them would be arrested. And so the Dutch resistance sent an architect and workers to build a secret room in their home, along with a buzzer that would alert those in the home to quickly get into the secret room. Now, this hiding place was located in Corey's room. It was equipped with ventilation and could comfortably fit their extra guests. The autobiography she wrote about these experiences is rightly held up as one of the required readings of books that, without question, inspired the evangelical movement of post-World War II America. And the book was rightly called The Hiding Place. After she was arrested, she would lead Bible studies in the concentration camp where she was held with a Bible that they had smuggled in. And after World War II, she became an amazing speaker and evangelist, using her testimony to powerfully declare the gospel. Her story is an amazing example of strong believers encountering horrific suffering, horrific evil. And yet, seeing the truth that even in the midst of all, God is our only refuge. The Lord is our only hiding place. The America that emerged from World War II unfortunately produced a completely contradictory gospel, one in which health and wealth became our false hope, and Christendom of the last 80 years has propagated a faulty and evil theology of suffering in which God is only good and he is only in control and sovereign if things go well for me in my life, and he ends the suffering. But a simple survey of Scripture and a quick listen to the testimony of Corey Tenboom and others like her clearly declare that God is sovereign over even the most horrific and evil circumstances. And while evil at times seems like it is winning, what Scripture teaches us is the truth that helped Corey and those in captivity with her endure that God will ultimately be victorious over sin and death and evil. And so we can stand firm in the midst of suffering, relying completely on the Lord, knowing that because he has overcome our most difficult enemy, sin itself, we can hide in the safety of his truth and his steadfast covenant love. And so this morning, the two psalms that we are observing and unpacking will clearly speak this same truth, that the Lord is our hiding place. The Lord is our hiding place. Similar to last week, we will see a couple of main themes intertwining throughout both psalms. We will see a plea for help from David who knows that he is needy for the Lord's rescue. And we will see David's confidence in the Lord's capable deliverance. These two seemingly contradictory themes, as we saw last week, actually will reinforce one another. For as David admits weakness and need for God's help, his confidence grows in God's character and desire to deliver him. Now notice with me the central descriptor that David uses to describe his neediness in each. We'll see a couple of connecting themes as we go through these. And the central descriptor of both here is in Psalm 31, 9, and 10, and Psalm 32, 3, and 4. We'll read those really quickly. Just look at those. In 31, 9, and 10, it says this. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul, and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. Notice this. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Look at the same thing in 32, 3, and 4. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We see these two connecting exact statements uh, in these sections. And notice the central request of both Psalms in response to this pain. We see this in Psalm 3120 and Psalm 3220. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. And 32.7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. You see, in these Psalms, the Lord is David's hiding place. And he's instructing those of us who suffer and struggle and go through trials that the Lord is our hiding place. But there's something else about these two Psalms this week. They help us as Christians recognize one of the most important truths that will help us through times of suffering. The greatest trouble that we need God's help on is not our current circumstances, not the ills of the world around us, not relational conflict, or friends, even physical or financial concerns. The greatest help that we need from the Lord is to be rescued from the result of original sin that has caused mankind to be separated from our creator God. We need help and refuge from sin. This will become clear as we compare the differences of these two psalms using these core verses that we just looked at. You see, our finite minds and senses, our inability to know anything outside of our time and space And our complete ignorance and lack of understanding around the topic of sin in today's society, these have reinforced the misunderstanding over what God should be most concerned about. We want him to be concerned about the temporary pain point in front of us, the thing that we think will overcome us, when, friends, his greatest concern is the eternal consequences of sin. And all his efforts are moving towards salvation from that great evil. We see this all throughout the Gospels, don't we? Time and time again, the people that surround Jesus are worried about the things that we would identify with, and we'd say, yeah, that's a problem. We get it. This is why you're bringing it to Jesus. Good job. They see Jesus feed thousands, and so they worry about their hunger, and they want him to feed them with solid food. They're getting water at the well, and so they ask Jesus about an unlimited supply of water. They're tired of Roman occupation, and so they ask Jesus for a rebellious uprising and to be their righteous king. They come to him about food and water and shelter and security and prosperity and relationship. And these are, in our finite minds, the things that the Lord should be tackling. And he has done that in so many ways. But friends, it's as if we want those to be his only focus. Because for us, they're the highest priority. But remember how Jesus responded in all these cases. He helped them understand that their greatest need was not solutions to their finite problems. Their greatest need was salvation from sin. Rescue from the original sin that marred the image of God in mankind. I can identify with many of the statements in the Gospels of Ignorant humans getting frustrated with Jesus. Jesus, I've got this issue. Why do you keep talking about sin? Forget salvation for a second. I need you right now. But Jesus knows the truth. There is a greater foe to be tackled. He wants to bring us freedom. Freedom for all creation from the bondage of the kingdom of darkness. This is the real issue that plagues mankind and all creation. And so if you are anything like me, you read some of these responses and you identify a bit with the characters. You say along with them, Jesus, don't diminish the issues of suffering. That's important, we say. But friends, what we must grasp is that Jesus' focus on deliverance from sin is not diminishing the other practical and finite issues. It's not as if he says, I'm only powerful to tackle one issue and so I'm going to brush those aside. They're not important. It's simply rightly defining the enormity of the problem of sin. In our Psalms today, David will be grappling with the same thing. In Psalm 31, we will see that his primary concern is the false accusations and hatred of his human enemies. He's going to cry out to God to bring justice and deliver him, this finite issue in front of him. 
And then in Psalm 32, he will again ask for deliverance and refuge, but in this second psalm, it will be a refuge from a totally different evil. There we will see that he is crying out for a hiding place in regard to his own sin. And in comparing the two, you will see with me that David not only sees this as the larger issue plaguing him, but also that victory over sin will allow him to have peace in the midst of all other immediate trials. Psalm 32 will declare this in one of the most beautiful truths for the Christian that can be found in the word of God. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. For when we grasp how weighty and how destructive and horrible sin is, we will understand that because God has given us deliverance from sin, we have refuge in the midst of any other temporary tribulation that we encounter. Our immediate reality may be horrible beyond comprehension, but knowing Christ's victory over sin and how awesome and how all-powerful it is will allow us to worship the Lord in thanksgiving, knowing that we are blessed beyond measure, even in the midst of suffering. Once we've tasted the truth of eternal life, every other trial is eclipsed by the light of God's grace. And this truth, as we will see with David, should grant us a confidence and a resilience that truly makes God's people extraordinarily different amidst a world who doesn't know him. Well, we're going to break apart the psalm so you can see what I'm talking about. Let's begin by reading together from a few portions of Psalm 31. We're going to read together as a church Psalm 31, 1 through 5, and then verses 9 through 18. Start there in verse 1 with me. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now Psalm 31, starting in verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors." Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. We do not have a completely confirmed understanding of when these were written with regard to the timeline of King David's life. Perhaps Psalm 31 was authored when David was hiding from Saul in the rocks of refuge at En Gedi. Or perhaps he was just drawing on memory, and this was far later after his son Absalom conducted a coup to oust him from leadership. But he uses imagery there, the rock of refuge, that reminds us of that time at En Gedi. Psalm 32 is a bit clearer. Some have suggested that it might have occurred after David's infidelity with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. Psalm 32 can be read in a way as a confirmation that God has been faithful to David in response to his prayer of contrition and repentance in Psalm 51. We know that, ha we know that happened, uh, the, the prayer of Psalm 51, after the evil event with Bathsheba. And so perhaps this is fulfillment of David's vow to instruct, instruct others in the way of God's grace. 
But we can glean from the text of Psalm 31 itself that the situational context is that of suffering due to the reproach of his adversaries. It says so clearly in verse 11, but the hints are right at the beginning as well. He says there in verse 4 that someone has laid out nets for him, hidden as if traps to catch an animal. Verse 13 discusses the schemes and plotting and lies spoken about him. And so this plea for mercy is one that serves as an example of all the injustice and suffering that we often face in the here and now, and from which we ask God to save us. It is such a good model or example that when the prophet Jeremiah wanted to declare his need for refuge from the judgment of the Israelite people, he borrowed from David's phrase here in verse 13, terror on every side, no less than six times in his prophetic writing. Jonah borrowed from Psalm 31 as well in verse 6 to declare his repentance to the Lord in the midst of the whale. And so Psalm 31 is known as a plea for help from the needy. And here David is in a tangible, physical trial, and he needs God to grant him refuge, or else he might just waste away. Friends, do the words of verses 9 and 10 resonate with you? Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Have you been in times of trial and suffering where your eyes were wasting away from crying? Your soul and body felt likewise as if they would perish. Even your bones felt like they would turn to dust because of your sadness. Friends, God expects this cry from us. He's listening, for he knows that we are but dust. We are needy. And David recognizes and declares here that he is needy. And this same neediness is felt in Psalm 32. What we saw in verses 9 and 10 is similarly captured in 3 and 4 that we read through earlier. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But notice that here, it is not the surrounding circumstances that are causing grief, but it is the fact that David has sinned and recognizes his guilt and pervasive depravity, and that the Lord will not give him refuge because he is in the midst of unrepentant and unconfessed sin. Notice that in verse 4, it is the Lord's hand that is causing the distress graciously to David, heavy upon him because in this moment, David is acting as an adversary of the gracious God. That's what we are when we walk in unrepentant, unconfessed sin, we are an enemy of the Most High King. Psalm 31, it is his adversaries that are causing him grief. Psalm 32, it is God's just hand because his own confessed sin, unconfessed sin and repression of the truth of his depraved heart is causing him grief. But is it even that simple and clear? Look again at Psalm 31.10. Even in the midst of the current finite circumstances that are causing him grief, there's something else underneath it. Look again at verse 10. He says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. The word for iniquity here is the same as the word for iniquity in, chapter thir- or in Psalm 32 too. Could it be that even though David is most distressed by the accusations of his enemies, there is a piece of him that feels as though he deserves it because he knows his own sinfulness? In other words, their comments, even though he's trying to dismiss them and say they're unjust, they're actually hitting something internally because he knows what he deserves is judgment. If their reproach was completely baseless, wouldn't he simply be able to rise above it? But even here, it seems, in Psalm 31, even though his most current situation is the concern deeper than that, David perhaps sees that his greatest need is not just refuge from his adversaries, but refuge from his own iniquity. Regardless, David recognizes his neediness for the Lord's help, and so, like you and I, he cries out and he makes a plea for help, and then he follows it up with the self-talk of the Christian that we discussed last week, where he makes a declaration of the Lord's deliverance. A declaration of the Lord's deliverance. Let's read together. 
in Psalm 31, verses 6 through 8 and 19 through 22. Starting in verses 6 through 8. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Verse 19 through 20. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. In verse 14, David declared that he trusts in God, and because of that, he was going to, verse 15, place himself in the hand of God, which is a very scary thing to do for a human that wants to control their own life. Amen? I can't tell you how many times I've heard in pastoral ministry, rightly so, something similar that my own heart has felt. I want to trust the Lord, but I'm scared that if I do, the other shoe will drop. Can I trust him? Well, friends, David says here clearly, we can trust him. He reminds himself of God's good nature, which is why he can trust him. God's goodness is abundant. He becomes, verse 20, a hiding place from the plots of men and a shelter from the accusations that swirl about. In verse 21, he notes that while David felt like a besieged city, God wondrously showed his hesed, his steadfast love. David felt alone, but God answered him. He operates in the prayer stance that should be the prayer life of every Christian. Friends, this is a great prayer to take before the Lord. Lord, you are, fill in the blank with the quality of his character. So then be that in my life. Lord, you are gracious, show me your grace. You are good, show me your goodness. You are my savior, save me. This is a great model of prayer for us. But it is here in this prayer that we come back to the difference between the two Psalms. For Psalm 31 is about a tangible earthly problem in David's life. Based on the story laid out in scripture of David's life though, did God rescue him from earthly trials? Was the rest of David's life smooth sailing? Maybe in some ways. But a quick perusal of his story shows that he fell into other far more difficult trials later. What about Jeremiah, who used the words of this psalm to cry out for God's help at least six times? Were his concerns heard by God? Not in a physical sense, it seems. Babylon invaded, the people were taken into exile, Jerusalem fell, and God told Jeremiah not even to pray for the people's deliverance any longer because he was going to judge them in wrath. And even Jeremiah's own personal life fell apart as he was imprisoned in a mud-filled cell and eventually was stoned to death by his countrymen who hated him. How about Jonah? Well, by the end of the story in the Bible, Jonah is back in conflict with God and overcome with depression that God was not doing what he wanted. I mean, you can see the sadness when you watch that VeggieTales episode. <laughs> Did not go well. So is David here in Psalm 31 giving glory to God and declaring God's deliverance because he knows God will do what he wants in an earthly practical situation before him? God, I can trust you because I'm going to get what I want. I don't think so. You see, the lie of Satan and bad theology around us will construct for us an ignorant pagan view of God that says, I am dealing with X. If God is good and I am his, he should fix X after I pray about X. But this view forgets God's sovereignty, forgets our small place in the vast cosmos of time and space, denies the complexity of interwoven reality of all humanity, and most of all minimizes the greatest need mankind has and all creation has, which is salvation from sin. And this false gospel, this false theology, it does this in an attempt to deny the true gospel of the Bible, and therefore it is from the pit of hell itself. 
This first psalm helps us to realize that the righteous, or those whom God has called righteous, can and do see tribulation. And oftentimes, they may not have an immediate answer of comfort and prosperity. But there is something far greater at work in the midst of those situations. Perhaps the central greatest example of this truth comes from perhaps the most well-known mention of this psalm in the whole of the Bible. And it's found in Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus, the one man to ever grace creation with complete perfection and obedience, quoted from Psalm 31.5 at the moment of his death. But remember with me that there was no immediate prosperity or comfort there at the cross. For all intents and purposes, his followers thought this was the end of their new messianic movement and that he was a failure. His persecutors thought they had just successfully silenced an insurrectionist. And only the Roman centurion at the cross and the thief beside him had a different idea. So why would Jesus cry out this line of scripture from verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit? Jewish students of scripture and especially rabbis know that the way scripture was quoted out of the law, prophets, and writings was to use a single verse to reference its surrounding context. And that was actually the message of what was quoted. So do this thought exercise with me for a moment, would you? In your mind's eye, picture Christ lifeless on the cross of Calvary, soaked in his own blood, limp from exhaustion and death, and now listen to the section surrounding the quote he uttered at the last. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Friends, why would Christ reference this section as he died on the cross? Did he think God was his practical refuge in that moment? Could those watching agree that the Father had delivered him out of the hand of the enemy and the net that was hidden for him? Judging by earthly standards, we would have to say... Absolutely not. But Christians do not see as the world sees. We have wisdom that elevates beyond this world in the bondage of our earthly perception. For in that moment of Christ's death, those with human physical senses saw failure and a death and a God who was non-existent. But the spiritual world and those whose eyes were enlightened by God's truth saw something far different. They saw that amidst that earthly suffering, Christ had indeed been delivered and given refuge by God. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, Christ could say with complete conviction. He was given a true hiding place in the Lord because the ultimate enemy, sin, death, hell, and separation from the Father were all defeated. And this victory was proven true three days later as Christ resurrected from the grave. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, if we fully grasp the truth of the gospel of our salvation, everything else seems to fade away because we understand what David declares next in Psalm 32. We understand the central truth in which we find refuge. The central truth in which we find refuge. And when we understand this central truth, it brings us refuge not just in death and eternity, but even in the midst of current suffering. Would you read with me Psalm 32, verses 1 through 10? 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, for my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not teach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This psalm is the culmination of the truth that we discussed all the way back in Psalm 1. Do you remember it? Psalm 1 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. All the way back then, we observed that no one of us naturally sit in the way of the righteous except Christ. For we who begin in the way of the wicked, we get into that way, the way of the righteous, through Psalm 32. We are sinners that are saved by God's grace, declared righteous so that we may walk in the way of Christ. This is the statement of one who has been walking in the way of the wicked, knows their sin, but then has repented by God's grace and now knows the joy of reconciliation and rescue by the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. David begins with a principal proclamation here, and he uses the tool of parallelism to do so. He mentions three different vantage points of sin and then matches them with three different ways that God has victory over them. First, we have here the word transgression, pesha in Hebrew. It means a rebellion, a going against God's authority. When we sin, regardless of who it is against, it is always first and foremost against God's authoritative declaration of what is good and what is evil. This is why David could say in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Friends, when we transgress, we are declaring that we know good and evil better than the Creator. And in so doing, we're making ourselves Lord. Secondly, he uses the word sin, kata'ah in Hebrew. This is to fall short of God's design as given in his law that declares what is good and what is evil. It is a failure to measure up to God's creative call. When we sin, we are refusing to answer God's purpose and design for us as his creation. And third, we have the word iniquity, avon in Hebrew. This means to twist and contort and mar the image of God that was placed into us by God. To commit iniquity is to disfigure and mutilate the good nature that God placed into his original creation. James Boyce sums this up well when he says that to sin is first to destroy our relationship with God, then our relationship with the wisdom of the law, and finally it's to destroy ourselves and then others. To sin, he says, is to become both twisted and twisting creatures. When we fully comprehend the reality of what sin is and does to us and others and to our relationship with God, it becomes putrid and rank, unpalatable, and hated in our lives. And only then do we grasp even a small portion of the fact that what we need salvation from is not our current suffering, but sin itself. Our current suffering and the suffering of this world is merely the sign and symbol that original sin is at work. Praise be to God that this short poem David gives us declares God's saving work in regard to each of these effects of sin. 
First, he forgives our transgression. He forgives our transgression. His benevolent and steadfast love begins with forgiveness for us, not because we have earned that forgiveness, but with the intent that his forgiveness is kindness that will draw us to repentance that forgiveness deserves. It is contra-conditional. It is against the conditions of a right relationship. We are sinners, and he says, I forgive you, now be drawn into my grace. When Christ sets his heart on you to give you his covenant love, he forgives you of your rebellion, not because of you, but because of his great name. Secondly, he covers our sin. He forgives our transgression, but then he covers our sin. This conjures up in the Jewish mind the cover of the Ark of Covenant. Inside the Ark were symbols of God's grace to the people that simultaneously symbolized their rebellion against him, the broken broken tablets of the law, a jar of manna, and Aaron's budding staff. But the lid or cover that went on the ark was called the mercy seat. It was the place above which the tangible presence of God dwelt among his people. And in providing that mercy seat, God covered the sin of his people, shielding them from his wrath. He forgives our transgression. He covers our sin. Third, he will not count our iniquity against us. He looks at you and I in our shame-filled eyes and declares that he will remember our rebellious acts no more. And friends, this is not that he just one day forgets. There is no forgive and forget when it comes to sin. God is omniscient. He knows all things for all time. It is that he chooses to remember our rebellious acts no more. Rather than counting our iniquities against us, The fancy term for that is imputing to us our iniquities. He imputes to us or counts towards us his righteousness. So clear here is the truth of God's substitutionary sacrifice in our place that brings about atonement that the Apostle Paul uses these three verses in Romans 4 to declare the truth of what God has done through Jesus Christ. He uses Psalm 32 to declare that justification in God's eyes comes through faith alone and no works on our part. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David declares this principle truth and then backs it up with his own personal testimony in Psalm 32 that describes how the Lord has done this in his own life. In verses 3 through 4, we see David's experience of carrying unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And it is true that repentance is not present when confession is lacking. Friends, this is a marker for us in our Christian walk. When confession is lacking, repentance is not present. Our sin will find us out. Far better to confess our sin into the light than to wait for the darkness to overwhelm us. It is here that we see that plea from the needy similar to Psalm 31, but it is not a plea for salvation from human adversaries here, but it's salvation from the rightful wrath of God. For when we walked in rebellion against God, we were his enemies, and our greatest worry was his wrath. For his hand is against those who refuse his position as Lord and King, and rightly so. So what did David do? Well, verse 5 tells us that he confessed his sins to God. Look at it there. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice the similarity there. He did not cover his iniquity. Why? Because our attempt to cover our iniquity, it fails so quickly. But God's covering, that's what he was crying for. And this brought about, this confession brought about God's gracious forgiveness. What a simple and profound truth in which we can find our hiding place. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin will eat away at us from the inside out. Not only will it eat away at us spiritually, but it will slowly but surely destroy our physical, mental, emotional, and relational lives as well. Friends, I've been doing this long enough as a Christian and as a pastor that folks who think that they can continue on in unrepentant sin and they think they'll get away with it, I watch at a distance as they slowly but surely get eaten up and spit out. It is the saddest part of pastoral ministry to watch a person, especially one who once confessed Christ, 
to walk in unrepentant sin rather than doing everything in their capability to cling to Christ and to kill sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin will eat away at us from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, we need to grasp this as a church. Confession is not meant to be used once in a while. After we've solved our problems and cleaned ourselves up and covered our own sin so that sin can look sanitized when we finally present it. Sin is death. You can't sanitize it. And so God gives us the gracious gift of confession, which is meant to free us from the burden of the sin we carry. Satan works in the darkness of our prideful refusal to be transparent about the spiritual warfare we are undergoing. Christ is the light. So brothers and sisters, cast light on your temptations and on your sins when you first notice them so that God can work in them. Look at what James calls the church to. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is a command of the church as a whole. And we know that this testimony of David here in Psalm 32 extends to the congregation of God's people as well because of verses 6 through 9. David pleads for those who are the Lord's to offer prayers of confession like he did so that they, like David, can see that God is the hiding place and refuge for the sinner. Friends, he's not waiting for you to clean yourself up so he can be your hiding place. You're to walk in dead. It's not possible, is it? God's the one that draws you in. He animates you to walk in in all your filth so he can be your hiding place. He is the hiding place and refuge for the sinner. And then in verses 8 through 9, it is unclear if it is David giving counsel or God himself who speaks here, but the admonition here is not to be rebellious and prideful in your sin like a horse or a mule without understanding, but to be humble and transparent and to recognize your need. Friends, that's every single one of us. Why aren't we more confessional in the Protestant church? Some might say that the Catholic Church has this down with the sacrament of confession and penance, but God is not suggesting through James 5 that we go into a dark booth so that the priest can give us a work of penance to counterbalance our sin and then we work the rest off in purgatory after we die. I don't find that anywhere in there, do you? No, confession is to be done amidst the people of God. It's to be done right now as you sit. It's to be done in the moment of communion. Friends, if you're a person who says, boy, I've got seven days before I clean myself up again before next communion. I won't take communion today, and then I'll clean myself up so I'm ready to get communion next week. You misunderstand, church. This is a place for sinners. This is a table for the needy. It's for people to cry out and say, Lord, I have failed you this week. Please forgive me. I repent of my filth. Help me to walk by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Let me come to your table in your grace. Confession is to be done amidst the people of God. For our mutual instruction, our admonition, our encouragement, and so the person caught in the grip of sin can find freedom and help in their time of need. To worry more about how people see us or whether or not we will be disciplined or what have you, friends, that's simply pride. For the very thing that you and I need when we are caught in the grip of prideful sin is to expose it. And when we do that, we will find the grace of the Lord ready to be revealed. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, we must become a church that grows in maturity so that we are not blindsided by sin. We are not shocked by brokenness. Our discipleship groups aren't full of people whose jaws drop when someone in our midst says, I am in sin. We say, praise God that he has given you the gift of grace to confess and to be vulnerable so that we can come around you with the grace of Jesus Christ. We need to become a mature church that doesn't get fearful that we might be disciplined from our sin. We will actually desire it because we know to be disciplined is not to be cast out. It's to be warned and then to be drawn into the church so that the word changes you. We need to be a church that is happy to go sit with the pastor, not fearful because what have I done? We're all sinners, including me. So let's welcome transparency and confession as a church. Friends, We have to understand that we are cleansed by the righteousness of Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross, not our own works. Do you care more about your standing with God and his forgiveness or your sin and your perceived false standing among your peers? The reality is, brothers and sisters, we all know that you are a sinner. And you all know that I am a sinner. What we need to accept is that sanctification comes when we actually admit it and cast aside these faulty masks of self-built holiness. True sanctification and holiness cannot develop until we care more about humbling ourselves before God than we do about the opinions of men or women around us. And friends, if you think that you can hide from your sin by running to a different church and leaving this one, You are so mistaken. It will follow you and it will find you out. Better to stay amongst friends and deal with it than to run away into the hands of the enemy. David ends this section with the truth of verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. All of humanity will encounter sorrows. We live in a world marred and broken by the sin of our first mother and father, but in the midst of those sorrows, We will see the steadfast covenantal love of the Lord when we trust him enough to give ourselves into his hand. And that is what David has done here. He has given himself as a sinner into the hands of a gracious God and pleaded for rescue. Friend, do you need to do that today? What do you need to confess to the Lord and his people so that you can find freedom? When we find this freedom, friends, we will not only find freedom from sin, but freedom from the heartache of the trials and sorrows of this current life. For once we recognize sin has been defeated and we have been given eternal life in Christ Jesus, everything else no longer matters. We can take it as it comes and recognize that it too will pass and eternity will show us that it was but a temporary concern. Friends, this is why Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, meaning no past, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Gerald Wilson, a renowned Old Testament scholar who has since gone to be with the Lord, said it perfectly. Listen to this. Like Jesus, we cannot assume that committing our spirits into the hand of the God of truth will result in deliverance from suffering and death. Indeed, to commit one's spirit in this way is to give up any control or expectation over the outcome of life and to trust in the redemptive love of God come what may. It is the giving up that makes it possible in the final analysis to enter the refuge or the hiding place of God. The taunts and ridicule do not disappear. They simply pass by without harm because we have passed beyond caring. The one who gives up life finds it. And in surrendering our claim to what we had thought to be life, we discover the true nature of living in the power of God alone and in his presence. David understood this truth. The Lord had become his hiding place, and rather than the strife of tongues that he heard in Psalm 31, David now hears shouts of deliverance or, put another way, songs of praise. And this is why both psalms finish with a call to worship. A call to worship. 
Would you read with me the last two verses of Psalm 31, starting in verse 23, and the last verse of Psalm 32? Psalm 31, 23. Love the Lord, all you his saints. Let's pause. Let's read it like we mean it. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The last verse of Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When we understand what the Lord has done for us in becoming a refuge from our sin and its deserved consequences, we begin to turn over all of life to him. And the freedom in that surrender of sovereignty over to him allows us to move through life trusting his goodness. Brothers and sisters, so many of us grapple with God for control. Perhaps we do it through the abusive attempt to control and manipulate others. Perhaps we do it through our anger, anxiety, or depression, fighting internally against the contentment in what God has given us for this life. Perhaps we do it through attempting to stay up to date in all that is going on in the world and on social media so that we drive ourselves crazy with worry, subconsciously believing that if we worry, we can control the outcome. But friends, when we grasp the enormity of sin's destruction and the enormity of the grace of Christ's redemption through the cross, we can gladly and easily hand our lives over to his lordship and rule, knowing that suffering will come. It has been promised. But we will make it through to the glory of God and the good of his saints. Like the hiding place provided by the family of Corey Tenboom, it did not remove the suffering that surrounded her family and those she helped. It simply hid them safely in the midst of it. And this is who Christ was to her and all who are his own. He is the hiding place in whom we can trust in the middle of any and every trial. David gets this. In Psalm 31, 14 through 15, that same commentator, Wilson, rendered this as, contrary to what one might expect under the circumstances, I do not despair, but I surrender and trust to the hand of God. I wonder if this understanding is what allowed Job to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And elsewhere he says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. The great tragedy of the dilution of preaching in the church as a whole is that the church thinks that it is serving humanity by talking about felt needs and current concerns. But my dear brothers and sisters, the most important thing in your life, in the life of every human, is to understand this central truth that David is declaring about our plea as needy sinners to see God as victorious over sin and death. This week I was deeply blessed to see all of what I am declaring to you in action. As I mentioned in my pastoral prayer, Cheryl, I was going to do fine until you guys showed up. <laughs> As I mentioned in my pastoral prayer, a brother that was attending mission for a while now went to be with the Lord this week. If you don't know Cheryl and Ted Worth, they are a wonderfully sweet and quiet couple. I asked Cheryl if I could share this testimony. And I practiced it last night and got through it. But then I saw her and her son walk in today, so. Ted was badly affected by the aftermath of a bout of COVID where his lungs were severely damaged and his body's immune system and immune response kicked into high gear a few months ago and started attacking his lungs and he found himself in the hospital on oxygen. Ted had been there about five or six weeks and in our communication there was hopeful direction of improving, but earlier this week they received news from the doctor that he was not going to improve. And so on Wednesday, I had the honor of sitting with Ted and with Cheryl, as Ted told me through an oxygen mask the story of when the Lord really got a hold of his heart. It was a moment where the Holy Spirit brought to mind the words of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And I told him, in God's providence as a church, this is where we were going to be going through 
this Sunday. We both smiled, and then I watched as he put on a song of praise. in which these are the lyrics. I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm and I will lift my hands because you are who you are no matter where I am. And as Ted mouthed the lyrics and his wife cried on his shoulder, he raised his hands in praise through tears. I can't tell you what an honor it was to watch the power of God's gracious gift of faith to Ted in that moment. He knew that the central truth in which we find the hiding place of God is this. Thank you. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Ted's faith became sight on Friday afternoon as he entered the loving arms of his Savior in whom he found refuge. Praise God for his faithfulness. Friends, when we are confronted with eternity, we will quickly recognize, as Ted did in his hospital bed, that nothing else matters other than this truth we have read this morning. On Friday, I listened as one of the nurses came to him and said, I'm so sorry to hear what's happening to you. And he said through his oxygen mask, it's okay. I know where I'm going. This central truth is what saved Ted. It's what saved you and I. And it's what will hold us fast. We are sinners that only Christ can save. And we, when we recognize that salvation, we realize that in any and all situations, the Lord is our one and only hiding place. There is no other. And so if you have not confessed your sin to the Lord, accepted his free gift of gracious forgiveness based upon the death of his son, Jesus, Friend, today is your day of salvation. Any of us pastors would love to pray with you and talk with you about what all this means. And for the rest of us, let us be bold to confess our sins to the Lord and to one another, recognizing that he has graciously become our hiding place no matter what we face in this life. And let us as a church do what this truth enables us to do, for we can weep with our sister in the loss of her husband. We can weep with our brother in the loss of his father. And we can also rejoice that he is standing in the presence of his Savior, knowing the love of the Lord. So let us be a church that walks in the light of this truth, confessing our sins, rejoicing in God's forgiveness. And let us now offer that praise to him as we sing and as we participate in the symbolic meal that declares this same good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Father God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your redemption and salvation. Just as David taught us through the Psalms, Lord, we know that our greatest enemy is sin and death itself. Praise to you that you have overcome it. All praise and glory go to you, Lord, that you have sent your Son to conquer sin and death, to give us the hope of eternal life. Lord, even death itself can no longer harm us and no longer has sting. We no longer fear it because you have given us the truth of your word and the truth that we will walk in eternal life with you, worshiping you for all time. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit as a guarantee that is poured out amongst these people 
Your Holy Spirit, he is the one that brings us to conviction as we read these truths. Your Holy Spirit is the one that draws us in unity with one another to be able to rejoice and celebrate, to weep, to act as one body in common unity. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you are a God who has truly taken care of everything. Forgive us for when our earthly senses cannot understand what you're doing. But, Lord, we know that we are needy, and so we plead with you, we plead with you that you would give us your spirit so that we can understand the fullness of this truth, so that we can see through the darkness that's around us and understand the light of your truth. Help us to do that now as we enter into communion. Help us to have repentant, confessing hearts that can lay down before you the things that we are struggling with and the sin that we find ourselves in. And Lord, I pray that you would meet every person in here with the comfort of your Holy Spirit and the acknowledgement that they are yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.